This is the Elevate Podcast, where trial lawyers learn, share, and grow. Let's talk about how we can elevate our trial practices, law firms, and lives. And now, here are your hosts, coming to you from coast to coast, trial lawyers, Ben Gideon and Rahul Ravipudi. Today's episode of the Elevate Podcast is being brought to you by Smart Advocate. Smart Advocate is award-winning case management software used to manage personal injury, medical malpractice, MDL, class action law firms all over the United States. Great program. Highly recommend it. Check them out at smartadvocate.com. Today's episode is being brought to you by Expert Institute. Expert Institute is the place to go for everything involving experts to help you win your case. Check them out at expertinstitute.com. And today's episode is being brought to you by Hype Legal. Hype Legal is a one-stop shop for all of your digital marketing needs. Check them out at hypelegal.com. So welcome to this special bonus edition of the Elevate Podcast. I'm Ben Gideon. And I'm Rahul Ravi Pudi. So Rahul, let's jump right into it. That We've been uh, waiting to hear from autopsy report on your recent trial in Las Vegas, where I understand you got a, a great verdict of over $8 million for your client that is then going to be increased based on the procedure there for pre-trial judgment or something like that. Do you want to explain that and tell us about your trial and how you got that great result? Sure. Just a little bit of background. This is a case involving a school teacher, a special ed teacher out in in Las Vegas. And it was the last Monday night football game of the year, December 17th, 2018. And he went to his local uh, casino, Barley's Casino and Brewing Company. It's really Town Center Amusements, Inc., but nobody calls it by that name. And Barley's is part of a larger enterprise which is the Station Casino Enterprise, uh, one of the larger casino operations in probably the country. And so he went there, placed a $10 bet on the Saints. He likes Drew Brees, and they gave him a drink coupon. And the people over there know him. You know, this is more of a local casino. So he walked over to the bar, and it's all on video. And the bartender said, hey, Lon, we've got our honey blonde ale back on on tap. Do you want to try a sample? So he said, sure. And the bartender pulls the handle, gives him a two, three ounce sample, hands it to him. He drinks it and immediately has a reaction. He doesn't know what he drank, hands it back to the bartender and asks her, you know, what did you give me? This isn't beer. And it turned out to be beer line cleaner. And that's a lye-based chemical intended to clean the pipe between the keg and the tap to make sure there's no bacteria in there. When I say it's a lye-based chemical, it's basically like liquid Drano. And so when that chemical went into his system and into his stomach, he started to have a panic attack and started sweating and going, I got to get this out of my system. And he vomited it back out probably 15, 20 minutes of him vomiting on video. And through that, he ended up having permanent injuries to his stomach, his esophagus. He's got permanent ulcers there. 
and nerve damage to his tongue with a loss of sense of taste. The last thing that happened to this poor man is that his esophageal sphincter, that's what it's called, where your esophagus meets your stomach, basically closes up. It allows food and uh, substances to go into your stomach, but then it closes up so that it doesn't allow anything to regurgitate back up. Because of this uh, substance he consumed, that was eviscerated. So basically every morning, uh, stomach acid builds up when you sleep. And for this man, he wakes up in the morning and that stomach acid then uh, causes him to vomit like a green foamy bile almost every morning. And on the mornings he doesn't, he is nauseous until about noon as he's trying to teach and educate these special education students who demand a, a lot of attention and the attention he really wants to give them. He incurred about 120000 in medical expenses. That's both past and future. So in this case, we brought an affirmative motion for summary adjudication on his medical expenses, and it was granted. So it was an undisputed fact that past and future, he was going to incur about 120000 precisely 114000 The defense disputed liability, said they didn't do anything wrong in serving this, this man a uh, lie-based chemical throughout the litigation in the case until about a few days before trial. And that's the thing. And Ben, you you experienced this too, I'm, I'm sure. Once the trial date is imminent, people have a reality check. And for whatever reason, all cards are held and, you know, reserved to play. And the defense does this in a lot of my cases. And then a week before trial, they look at their hand and they go, okay, I'm folding on 95% of this because it has no merit and it'll be me that's inciting the jury into, into frustration and anger if I even try on any of these things. And that's what happened in this case. Just days before trial, the defense said, okay, we're not fighting anymore. It's our fault. We're not going to blame your client anymore for drinking something that a restaurant actually gave him. He should have the right to trust uh, a restaurant and assume they're not going to poison him. And so we're not going to blame him anymore. And we agree we injured him. We agree that he had stomach injuries. We agree he had esophageal injuries. We agree he had nerve damage. And that's how we went into the case. Now, I feel like one of the questions is, how come this case didn't resolve? And that was a question that I asked directly to defense counsel. What are we doing here? We served initially a settlement demand and an offer of judgment, it's called in Nevada, for a million dollars. It was not accepted. Then we served another one for two million. That was not accepted. We got an, a judgment, a partial judgment of $114,000. It's your fault. What's the offer? And the offer remained 140000 So basically, the defendants for the permanent pain, suffering, trauma, emotional distress, mental anguish that this man's going to suffer for the rest of his life and has been suffering for the last four years, they're saying that's worth $26,000. And it didn't make sense. But that's what they did. They stood by it. And then we went to trial. They didn't put on any witnesses. I put on two witnesses, our firm. One was our client and the other was a GI doctor. And that was all done in one day. We opened on a Wednesday. We put on evidence on a Thursday. On Friday morning, we closed. 
we asked the jury for an award of $18 million. The defense asked the jury to award $300,000, and the jury went to deliberate. As they were deliberating, something happened that is, I don't want to say is typical, but is not rare. The defense then reached out and said, hey, would you agree to a high-low? And the initial proposal was a low of 250000 and a high of $2 million. And just, just to explain what that means, that means basically if I had got defensed and the jury said $0, they would still pay 250000 And if the jury agreed with me and awarded $18 million, the most I, my client would get would be $2.5 million. And so that was rejected. And common sense rejects that because usually a high-low is contemplated to manage any downside risk. And with the defense recommending that the jury 300000 a low of 250000 doesn't really uh, protect any downside risk. And it just made no sense. I explained that to the lawyer and who hopefully related to the carrier. And then they came back and said, well, what do you think about 250 low, 5 million high? said, you're still, you're still missing the point, you know? And so then my client authorized me to respond and say, we will agree to a low of 4 million and a high of 14 million, inclusive of any post-trial attorney's fees and costs that should be awarded for failing to accept the $1 million and $2 million demands. They rejected that and said, we agree to, will you agree to a 750 low, seven and a half million high? That was rejected by us. And I reiterated my offer of uh, 414. Then the verdict came in and the verdict was $8 million. So $8 million and which beats the 1 million and the 2 million uh, offers of judgment. Uh, we're entitled to our attorney's fees and our costs that were incurred. And that will ultimately increase the judgment to about 11.5 or $11.8 million. Wow. That's such a great result and such a triumph over the obstinacy and idiocy of the defense positioning here. And as you were telling the story of the injury, it's such a visceral story. You can't help but be affected by that. I just have one question about that the injury mechanism itself. As somebody who enjoys drinking beer at uh, bars and restaurants, is this something we should be worried about? Because you'd think, well, other businesses must have to clean their lines occasionally. How do they make sure this doesn't happen to other people or does it happen more than we know? It does happen more than you know, unfortunately. And it's it should never happen. You know, it's it's really not that complicated to protect against um, a line being used. Uh, interestingly enough, in this particular case, the communication and miscommunication was so egregious. In the morning, there was another bartender who was there. The handle was actually off the Honey Blonde Ale. And that's usually a sign that that means that tap is off limits. For whatever reason... Bartender still pulled from that tap to see if the if there was anything running. And usually the carbonation is turned off so that when that lie is in there, even if you pulled the handle, it can't actually flow. Nothing would flow out of it. And then you turn everything back on and put that pressure back on to flush the lines 
And there's a process for doing that. But a substance came out that looked when you have it, that clear odorless chemical in the line and it's eating up all the bacteria, it starts to develop a color that looks like beer. So the bartender actually drank it and went to the restroom and started vomiting and having similar experiences to my client. Then went to the supervisor and said, that honey blonde line, that's still got cleaner in it. Make sure nobody serves anything to anybody from there. Got it, got it, got it. It was communicated to the bartender who then serves it to Lon. And so not only does it happen, it happened twice that day on this particular case. There's other cases that have happened across the country with this exact occurrence. But it's one of those things where it sounds terrible and I hate to say it to a beer drinker, but it's something you should be worried about because if they don't clean the lines, then you've got this horribly dirty line that's serving you beer. You think it's fresh because it's coming from a keg. It's far from it because it has to travel through that dirty pipe to get to your glass. Or you got to rely on on these folks actually doing the right thing and, and making sure that they're not serving you some sort of poison substance. It's scary. It's weird. And, you know, it's part of our practice and the things that we start to see always makes me nervous, whether it's walking down the street, getting a Coca-Cola or beer from a, from a restaurant, getting served food. I mean, it's unbelievable. I guess it's a good argument in favor of whiskey, maybe. <laughs> so did you have a sense before trial? Did you have any data on what you thought the value, the real value of the case was? Because you obviously rejected some offers or high-low agreements and you must have had I mean, maybe it was just intuition or did you have more kind of data you were relying on from focus groups or something else that helped uh, determine what the value was? It's all of the above. So uh, part of it is internal focus groups. I don't want to call it water cooler talk, but talking to other lawyers and kind of telling them what the facts of this case are. Part of it was there was no meaningful offer before trial, right? So $140,000 there's no decision to make at that point. There was no effort to even make it a hard decision for my client to consider. So the case was going. But then there's the trial survey type of online focus groups that are done and other types of mechanisms that we utilize to try and give us an idea as to what an appropriate amount, what a verdict value could be on this case and where you start to hit a point where it would be unreasonable for, for you to ask for a certain amount of compensation. And so we did and gathered all of that information to make sure that what we thought was a fair and just compensation for our client did not defy logic, sort of teeter on the outside bounds of exposing ourselves as being the unreasonable, greedy lawyers and plaintiffs. And it proved right, especially with this particular jury. There was an interesting thing on the jury too, though. It took three days to pick a jury on this case to put one day of evidence in front of them because of the concepts of non-economic damages and sort of talking about those issues and spending a lot of time with the prospective jurors on it and asking them, hey, in this case, economic damages, these medical expenses, it's already been dealt with. You're not going to hear anything about that. Responsibility, you're not going to hear anything about that. 
no matter how egregious or not egregious their behavior is, it's not something you'll learn about. It's not something that you will get to consider. Your sole issue in this case is putting a dollar figure to pain, suffering, emotional distress, mental anguish, trauma. And there's some people who just don't believe in that and don't think that this is a system where you should do that. And there's other people who think that I need to hear the full story before I can even be in a position to do that. Does anybody share that opinion? And all sorts of people are raising their hands and saying, yeah, I, I can't do that. These are all uh, things that we all deal with in our daily lives. And so, you know, I've dealt with issues in my life and I didn't get any money for it. And I just don't understand how it could be done in a case. And I don't believe in it. So we went through and like 25, 27 jurors got excused for cause because they just couldn't hear the evidence and sit judgment on that issue, which I think was important in making sure we got an actually unequivocally impartial jury, which is the standard in, in Nevada. We'd like to thank the sponsors of the Elevate podcast, Steno, national court reporting service that allows trial lawyers to defer the costs of court reporting until the end of the case. Take a look, steno.com. And by Law Pods. Law Pods is the podcast production company that we use to produce the show that produces uh, podcasts for lawyers all over the country. They have an expertise in podcasting and the law. Check them out at lawpods.com. So people would say, without having heard the evidence that just the in the concepts of pain, suffering, non-economic damages weren't things they were willing to consider or, and then I assume the defense would try to rehab them to say, well, if you heard evidence that supported these things, you would certainly consider giving them or something like that. Or did you just have them so deep in the hole of their beliefs that they couldn't recover? It was the latter. And the way voir dire works in Nevada is that you can move for cause at any time. And so with these jurors, I was still actually in the middle of my voir dire. By the end of the day, five, seven, nine of these jurors exhibited uh, evidence supporting a removal for cause. And then I would move for cause. And there's no way to rehab and prove unequivocal impartiality based on the statements that they made. So for the most part, the defense did the right thing and stipulated to their removal. What the defense did, though, and now you've got basically a, a panel that is not going to get excused for cause when the defense finally steps up to do their voir dire. And his real focus, he had the corporate risk manager for Station Casino there, the large company. And he really did a, an effort to say, hey, people hate corporations. I represent Station Casino, one of the large, largest corporations here in Nevada. And anybody want to stick it to the man here and, and just want to, uh, would be already biased against my client because I represent a casino. And initially he was getting some traction on that. And there were some people who came in and this one guy, he just, Mr. Kramer was his name. He's like, yeah, man, look, <laughs> You guys at Station Casino, you poisoned this man, you poisoned him, and then you're clearly lowballing him. And you know what? They want $10 million or something like that. That sounds a little light to me. You should get a lot more. You guys have markers of like $20, 30000000 million. You probably have like 50 of those out at any given day. 
And then you're just going to nickel and dime this guy. Oh yeah, right. God. He goes, I hate you guys. And by the way, you kicked me out of one of your uh, casinos once because I was a little too drunk. I was a little too drunk, but you know what? You know, I don't think I could be fair to you guys. Right. <laughs> so, so we started hearing a little bit of that, but once that person got excused for cause, which he did, then a new person got seated. So then it was my turn to go back up because I get to go first. So I went up with the new person and uh, started talking about corporations. I said, hey, I know they represent a corporation here. We all know that, right? But there's an interesting thing about this particular case. This is a unique case. You're not going to hear from a single corporate witness. Actually, the defense and this corporation, they're not going to be calling any witnesses. So whatever your feelings are about a corporation, you're not going to hear testimony from those people where it could actually influence your decision, right? So in this case, really the spotlight is on my client and me and the evidence we're putting forward. And it could be an individual on the other side. It could be a big corporation. But practically speaking for this case, they're anonymous because all the evidence you're going to hear is from what the plaintiff is putting forward. And then the arguments are going to be heard and you're going to sit in judgment and decide that. Understanding that that's the context and contours of this particular case, any feelings you have about corporations, would you agree that they do not and cannot impact your ability to be a fair and impartial juror on this case? And then all the jurors like, I get it. Yeah, I'm good. And then all of the efforts to try and uh, push the whole big corporation, hate me, hate me, hate me, fell totally flat. And all of those jurors who were going to be fair and impartial did not get excused for cause, which, thank goodness, because there were a bunch of biased jurors that were coming in the pipeline if if a number of these people got tricked into getting excused for cause. Yeah, that was well done. I, did you come up with that on the fly or did you have that planned out in advance? No, Sonia Chopra and I worked on that the night before as we kind of saw that happening and we're trying to understand how to how to communicate to the jury this case doesn't really expose itself to that type of bias. Another reason why working with jury consultants is, is incredibly valuable, but also another reason why learning about voir dire, you don't have to have consultants with you all the time, but learning from people who use them, you know, take the, take the free knowledge as it comes out too. But it sounds like you were very successful in getting, uh, challenging a number of jurors who we're not going to consider non-economic damages as opposed to the, I guess what you often hear is the Nick Rowley approach of we love everybody. And, but I mean, I think the reality is that they exercise cause challenges too, of course, but, but you've had a lot of success in picking juries, right. In in really spending time to try to identify jurors who are not going to be open-minded about your case. Do you think the result in this case would validate that approach? I think so. And, you know, there is a fundamental uh, difference in philosophies that a number of lawyers have. And we heard from the Cullen brothers recently that one of the Mo Levine says, you just want to have the jury like you by the time you sit down and kind of focusing on things like that. I really think that my philosophy is that first, 
whether they like me or not, <laughs> I don't know if that really moves the needle on whether they're going to find in my favor. I have a lot of friends, closest friends, and you're not going to believe this, Ben, we disagree on things. And they're not afraid to tell me that I just disagree with you, Rahul, on that issue. So, you know, and that's based on their belief systems, their life experiences, right? How they see things. And so it's not whether somebody's going to like me or not. It's really, what do they come in with? And I don't think it's easy for us as lawyers on the plaintiff side. I think we have a really hard job. And to make our job harder by just allowing biased jurors to be in there and hope by just some fancy words that we're going to be able to sway them to our side is an unnecessary burden we should be putting on ourselves. And I don't think in that short period of time that we're going to spend with these jurors that we're going to somehow convince them that they're 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years on this earth and the way that they've developed their beliefs in their community is somehow something I'm going to be able to sway. So the approach and philosophy that I employ is, is truly focused on identifying issues and uh, leanings that they have and ensuring that folks that have those leanings that will be on their mind as they hear the evidence and deliberate are excused for cause. And I've never, ever, in all the juries and all the trials, had a jury come back to me at the end and say, that was really inappropriate what you did, and it turned a bunch of people off. It only turned off the people who were going to be biased towards my case anyways. And it enlightened all the other folks who had to sit there for two, three, five days and watch as all these biased jurors got excused for cause and they go, man, this whole jury process is hard. And we need to make sure that it's a fair process as we as we sit here on this case and they and they understand and respect that. So kind of in hindsight and the philosophy, you kind of start to learn that there's nothing offensive about the approach that we take, which then makes me feel comfortable continuing to employ it. Yeah, well, I agree with you. And I think that one reason I think the Mo Levine line was to make sure that have the jury not hate you. <laughs> uh, but I, I feel like it, you have to be very skilled in the manner in which you do that, that questioning in order to tactfully accomplish the goal without alienating or offending. You're obviously very skilled at that. Many lawyers are not. And so therefore their attempt to ferret out bad jurors can lead to polarizing jurors or, or to causing them not to like the lawyer. So it is a, it's a lawyering skill issue to some extent. Were there other areas that you explored in voir dire other than the, the non-economic damage issue? Yes, there were a lot. Just the concept of it being admitted liability. A lot of people, and there are a lot of prospective jurors who go, wow, defendants have admitted responsibility. Isn't that enough? It still touches on the damages issue, but then it goes into a deeper issue of who's greedy here? Does anybody think that, you know, we're here, we're in trial, defendants have admitted responsibility. Why hasn't this case settled? And maybe it hasn't settled because the plaintiff is greedy. So there's there's that issue. Is that how you would ask it? Yeah. That's good. I like and then 
some people raise their hand and go, yeah, you know, I don't get it, you know. And then I heard in your mini opening statement that you're going to be asking for $10 million. And that honestly, that shocked me and makes me think maybe you guys are being greedy. And then that gets into the world of caps, caps on damages. So, you know, just kind of without even hearing anything on this case yet, have you already decided that there's an amount that's too much? Yes. Right. Okay. And let's talk about that. And all of these things then stem to no matter what the evidence is in this case, what you're telling me is, is you as, as a juror in this case, there's a limit on how much you would award. Yeah. And for that, knowing that we're going to be asking for an excess of $10 million, do you agree you cannot be an entirely impartial juror on this case? I'm sorry, but yeah. Right. And, uh, and so then, then the, the group dynamics come out. And as we start to talk about why, why is it you feel that way? And then they start to explain their life experiences. Then a number of other people raise their hand and they say, you know, I agree with your number seven. And I dealt with the same things. I feel the same way. And then we move on to different topics. But yeah, say that those were kind of the main ones. The, the non-economic damages and going through each element was probably the vast majority of my dialogue. And then after the first day of doing it, it really started to become pretty efficient in the sense that I would a, a new juror would get seated. You know, I may say something as simple as this. You're not going to believe this, but I bet you know what questions I'm going to ask you. And, and then the juror just starts talking. Okay, so here's my issue on this. Here's my issue on that. Or I know all the issues and I don't care who the defendant is. I don't care. I'm not holding you to a higher burden of proof on this uh, non-economic damage thing. I can be totally fair and impartial. I've got no caps in my mind. Oh, the other area I usually talk about is just the difference between evidence. So this pain, suffering, emotional distress, there's no medical bills. And I've heard a lot of people say, you got to cover their medical expenses and just show me what the bills are. I can evaluate that evidence and then I can deliberate on that. But when you get into this touchy feely stuff, I'm a little bit skeptical. And when they say skeptical, that's another way of saying I'm holding you to a higher burden of proof. And, uh, and so just kind of exploring those topics and seeing if they're just going to expect more from me just because of the character and nature of the damage. Those are other issues that we kind of get into on a case like this. It's interesting. Well, great result, Rahul. I'm really happy you're willing to share this with us. What What's the status of the case today? Status of the case as of today is that um, there's been a bunch of post-trial motions filed. We have our uh, motion for fees and costs that's pending, and the defense has opposed all of that. And we'll get it all heard soon. And on to the next issue in a case where everything's been stipulated to, including a stipulation that was read to the jury that the defense refused to admit liability early on and forced the plaintiff to incur significant costs and expenses in hiring experts and taking depositions on liability only to admit liability two days before trial. There's nothing reasonable in the way that they defended the case and the decisions that they made leading up to it. So. Did you ever figure out why they were making such 
bad decisions? Not yet. I think I'm going to, you know, if I were, if I were to speculate, I have a feeling that at some point in the future, there's going to be some arguments or disputes between the different layers of coverage in this case. And, um, through that, I'm going to get to find out exactly all of the poor decision-making that was done at different times. Well, I hope you'll report back on that if you oh, definitely. To find out at a later date. Well, thanks, Raul. This was really interesting. Uh, thanks, Ben. For more information about today's guests and the topics discussed on the show, please visit our website at www.elevate.net. That's E-L-A-W-B-A-T-E dot net, where you'll find guest profiles and show notes, and you can continue the conversation by joining our Facebook group. And if you enjoyed today's show, we hope that you'll subscribe and consider giving us a five-star review. So for now, keep on working to elevate your trial law practice, and we'll see you back again soon.